Welcome to the Salty Pastor with Dr. Douglas Peak. I am Jesse, your host, and today we will be digging into Genesis chapter 42 as we continue our study on the life of Joseph. Pastor, I want to say that when I read this part of Joseph's story, things got really, really weird. <laughs> yes. So I hope you can shed some light on the strange direction things seem to go from here. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's definitely an interesting turn. Um, it's very interesting in the fact that if you think about Moses is writing this during the Exodus after 400 years, four generations of slavery in Egypt and 40 years in the desert. So he's kind of recording their story uh, back to the beginning. And what's interesting is papyrus is what they were writing on. It was very expensive. It was very difficult. So you tended to write only the most important stuff. So they're telling the story and he goes into it in great detail with all these twists and turns. And so at first reading, you're kind of like, what, what is he doing here? But I think as we dig into it, we're going to see more and more of why it, it he's has doing a purpose. It. it has a purpose. So let's do dig into it. It seems chapter 42 opens by going back to Jacob and his brothers. Um, verse 1 says, When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to the sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? I mean, he kind of rebukes them a little bit. Yes, he rebukes <laughs> and them. He, and he continues, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Verse 3, Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others, because he was afraid that harm might come to him. Verse 5 continues on, So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was a famine in the land of Canaan also. Why does the narrative return to Jacob at this point? Well, when you look at the, the story arc and you look at how Moses is including all of this, it's really important to see how their paths cross again. Because you think about it is that the famine really affected everyone, not just Egypt, but it, it, it impacted everyone. The only people who were prepared for it were Egypt. So in Canaan, where Joseph's family lived, they were not aware of seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. So they didn't save. They just thought, wow, we're on the gravy train. Well, then it all dries up. And so now they're out. But Egypt is prepared. But why is Egypt prepared? Because they had Joseph to interpret the dreams. Yeah. Of Pharaoh. And who sent Joseph to Egypt? The brothers, the brothers. <laughs> who are now standing around each other, looking at each other, going, you know, what do we do? And, and Jacob, the father, says, do something uh, so that we might live instead of die. Maybe he's a little dramatic, but I think the point is, is that obviously we're not prepared for this. And so uh, Joseph's efforts are what ultimately brings redemption to his family. So this is where we start to see uh, the very first signs of the messianic pattern emerging in the Old Testament. So we see some of the earliest patterns in the book of Genesis about Jesus Christ who comes as the Messiah. So by understanding the story of Joseph and the patterns of what's happening, we really start to understand who Jesus Christ is and what he did for you and me. So the brothers travel to Egypt to buy grain. Yes. The first person they run into is Joseph. <laughs> 
Um, it's been quite a while, obviously, yeah. but let's let's read what happened. So verse six goes on. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold the grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Verse 8, although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Verse 9 continues on, then he remembered his dream about them and said to them, you are spies, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. Verse 10, no, my lord, they answered, your servants come to buy food. 11, we are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. Verse 12, no, he said to them. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. Verse 13, but they replied, Your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. So, why do you think Joseph doesn't tell him who he is? Like, he has the opportunity, why does he choose to hide his identity? Payback. No, I think, <laughs> I think really, though, what's going on here is a couple of themes emerge and that was this. The first one is, if you remember in the last chapter, he has two sons. One is Manasseh. and the Joseph, other, has two Joseph has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Manasseh means that the Lord has helped me forget my suffering and my family of origin. You know, the, the family treated him. So... The first thing that happens is now the family that mistreated him is smack dab in front of him. He'd probably forgotten, as he names his son, the trouble of his family of origin. And so he forgets the dream that he had when he was 17. And then it's recalled to mind because they're all there bowing, bowing down, down to him. And he's going, oh, my goodness. So I think the first thing is what you see is that he was in shock. And that's usually what happens in the path of healing. You know, whenever God wants to redeem something or heal something, there, it usually starts with a shock. You know, I was uh, talking to a man who had been an alcoholic for many, many years, 20 years, and he said, I went to AA and that really helped me. I met the Lord there and that's, and I've been, you know, he said he'd been sober for 20, 25 years when I was talking to him about this. And I said, well, what caused you to go to AA or what caused you to take that step? And he, go, he said, well, it was, I had a wake up call, you know, I had a wake up call. And I said, what, did you get in an accident or a DUI? He goes, no, I, that had happened to me before. He said, what had happened is I was, you know, I was married. I've been since divorced and I had children and my daughter, uh, when she was about 20 years old, uh, I was visiting her, you know, at college. She's going to the local college there, living off, uh, living on campus. And he said, we, we were talking and she got, you know, drank a little too much one time and, and called me for a ride home and. And so I went and picked her up and I took her home the next day. I just, you know, was talking to her about it. And she just said, yeah, I don't think I'm ever going to do that again. And he said, why is that? And she said, because you drink and you've never really been my father. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he said that was a shock 
a shock for him. And so he said it was at that point I realized I needed to do something about it. Healing always begins with a shock. And I think that Joseph was just shocked. And probably, you, you know, when your first reaction, when you need to heal, even when somebody else has done something wrong to you and you need to heal about it and you see them, your first response to them is usually negative. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, if like the person who what's... cheated you or abused you or lied about you or stabbed you in the back, or whatever, they walk into the room, you don't go, wow, so, so good to see you for giving me an opportunity to heal from <laughs> the way you, you know, ripped my heart out of my chest and stomped on it. Right. So I think there's some of that happening. And so we see this pattern of, of how God doesn't allow us to run from our pain. See, that's a really big, important thing. I think the second theme is this, is that there, there would needed to be some discovery, which this is we see the messianic process of redemption. And that is they sold him when he was 17. He entered the Pharaoh's service at 30. So that's 13 years right there. And then there was a seven years of plenty, right? So now we're at 20 years. And then the famine had been going on for some time. So it's been over 20 years since they last saw him. Since they last saw him or had any contact with them. So I think verse 13 is really, really important. Is their first, Notice the interchange in their conversation. He says, although, verse 8, although Joseph recognized his brothers, he says, you are spies. Now he says that in verse eight, because in verse seven, he said, where do you come from? He said, we came from the land of Canaan to buy food. And so then he challenges again by accusing them. He says, we are all sons of one man in verse 10. And then he says, no, you've come to see where our land is unprotected. And then verse 13 is a critical one. Your servants were 12 brothers the sons of one man who live in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and one is no more. So you notice how the first time they just say, uh, we are all sons of one man. We're all brothers. You know, we're not in the military. We're not representing us. We're just one family. Right. And, but they don't give him any detail. And so I think there's this process of discovery and he challenges them and then they kind of tell him the truth. So I think that that's how some of the themes that are happening here and why he doesn't reveal himself. So it would seem at this point that Joseph would reveal himself, you would assume at this point, after they've had this kind of discovery moment. But he actually launches into a weird plot. So let's continue reading. Joseph reacts strangely. Verse 14, Joseph said to them, It is just as I told you, you are spies. 15, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Verse 16. Send one of your numbers to go get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. Verse 17. And he put them in all, they put, he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. Verse 19, if you are an honest man, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take the grain back for your starving households. Verse 20, but you must bring back your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. 
This they proceeded to do. Why would he do this whole elaborate thing? Was he just missing the youngest brother, or what's <laughs> what was the idea behind this? Well, it's interesting that you see him at first. He says, look, you're all spies. You're going to jail. So he throws him in jail, and then he says, I want to see that your words may be tested if you are telling the truth. Otherwise, you're spies. And so, but three days later, and so it's interesting why three days, you know, we start seeing More this messianic, messianic thing. Jesus was in the grave three days. And so for three days, they're in prison. And he says, do this and you will live for I fear God. So he points back to God now. And he says, I'm going to let all of you go, but I'm going to ransom one of you. So we, we're seeing this, these messianic themes crop up. I'm going to ransom one of you. And he goes, bring uh, to see if you're being truthful. So I'm going to keep one because you told me you have a younger brother. So bring him back. And if you bring him back and there's 11 of you and he says, yes, I'm the younger brother, then I'll believe you, which is kind of it is kind of strange. But this messianic theme is really starting to rise up. And then we really see the, what happens in the lives of the brothers in verses 21, where it says they say to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother, meaning Joseph. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. I find it interesting that, that in the very first part of this chapter, Jacob has to prod them to go get food, right? They're just slowly starving, and he yeah, finally and is like, get out of the, the house. house. Stop living in my house in the basement. This was the original millennials, is what you're saying. The original millennials were the I'm 12. turning off the internet if you don't get some food. But they didn't, notice how they didn't see that as a distressful situation. And I think, in all reality, the reason why is because they probably had really, you know, large flocks and, you know, the thing. And so they weren't technically starving to death. But their diet was pretty restricted, you know, as right. water and meat. And that really is, you it's know, not the building blocks. Yeah, that original diet. keto stuff will <laughs> lean you out pretty quick. And so grain was critically important. But what happened is they do see this as a distress. What's happening here to us is unfair because we treated we were unfair to we joseph. were unfair to joseph and then the only person that advocated for joseph when he was thrown in the pit was the oldest brother of them all and that's reuben he was the firstborn of jacob to uh leah the first his first wife and so reuben replies in verse 22 did not i tell you not to sin against the boy but you would not listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. So a typical older brother response, didn't I tell you not to do this? And <laughs> now you're brother, in trouble. Yeah, now you're in trouble. I've given one or 5,000 yeah. of those lectures. So, <laughs> Yes. And so what's amazing about this that I think is so fascinating is that we see the messianic thing happening. And that is we have to give an account. So they start to come to terms with the fact that all the dysfunction in their family and all of their distress is due to the fact that they've never come or given an account for their wrongdoings. 
They did not realize that Joseph could understand them because he was using an interpreter. So Joseph was speaking in Egyptian through an interpreter who spoke in Hebrew. But of course, he was raised Hebrew, so he understood everything they were saying. And he's listening to them. And, he, and in that moment, he sees how they're coming to terms with their wrongdoing, see? And so verse 24 is very powerful. So Joseph turns away from them and he begins to weep. So we see how their contriteness, their remorse is impacting him. Starting that healing. Yeah, and you know, before, last chapter, his, his firstborn son, I have forgotten the pain and suffering of my family. Now he's weeping over it. So you can see how maybe he didn't completely forget. I don't know. But maybe the naming of his son was an aspirational name. You know, I want to forget this and heal. Now the Lord is healing him. He had Simon taken away them and bound before their eyes. So he, you know, throws them in handcuffs, so to speak, and takes them down to the dungeon. And I think I think what we see in the messianic theme emerging is that there's a need for any and all people to come to terms with their own failures and their own sins in life. And it's really difficult to experience the redemption of Christ, the healing of Christ, when you're in denial about your own sin. And so that is early on in the Old Testament. It travels throughout the entire Bible, and you see the resolution of that in the book of Revelation. If you were to look at the whole Bible in one story, you know, one theologian says it's really pretty simple. You see paradise in the the Garden of Eden and then paradise lost with Adam, when Adam brings sin into the world. And then what you do is you see the Messiah come to win paradise back. And then what you see is paradise restored in the book of Revelation when Christ comes again. So, that's really, in a nutshell, the whole story of the Bible, you know. I mean, and it's really amazing everything that happens in between it. So the messianic theme over and over and over again is pointing to the path of salvation. So I have a better understanding of what happens next. So let, let me read this part. Uh, verse 25 um, says, Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, verse 26, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. Verse 27, at the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get his feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of the sack. 28, my silver has been returned, he said to his brother. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other, trembling, and said, what is this that God has done to us? It seems the theme here is one of gifting back by Joseph. Yeah, so they brought silver to buy, right? Buy the grain with, right. right? So he fills their bags, and then on top of each bag, he puts their silver back in it, right? So he gives it back. Yeah. He gives it back to them. And then he gives them provisions to travel back, you know? Cause, uh, After all this spy accusation. Yeah, all this kind of stuff. So he, they're not only uh, not paying for the grain, they're coming back with even more than what they didn't pay for. Right. So it's, it's a, just a, a, an overwhelming act of grace in a way. It's a, and what it does is instead of going, yeah, they're like, oh my goodness, their hearts sank. In verse 28, their hearts sank and they were trembling. And this is what they say. 
What is it that God has done to us? That's an interesting response. That's a very say. interesting response. Because what they're doing is they're saying that grace wasn't like, woohoo, I won the. It was like this overwhelming conviction in what his God done to us. Because this is just not normal. This is not the way human beings interact or justice works or anything at all. It's not even mercy. I mean, we're in a whole nother area and God is doing something. And what is it he's doing to us? And it really shakes them to their core. And in the final verses in the chapter, then when they arrive home and they give a report to Jacob and tell him what's going on, you see that the family is incapable of dealing with what's going on. And I think what's amazing about this is that when grace first confronts a person authentically, when they first meet Christ, is that they, there will be a, a shaken to your core. Um, my daughter always has this phrase. She says, I was shaken to my foundation. And uh, so now she goes, boy, I'm shook. And, and so I think these people were shook. They were really completely undone by this massive act of grace because they knew, and they said this, they knew that we are now having to give an account for our sins against our brother. We're having to give an account for this. And then suddenly the, the uh, response that they get is one of grace. And it just shakes them. It undoes them. It's so, it's so much as that the, Jacob, he can't even realize it, right? Even though he has all the facts in front of him. Okay, they're keeping Simeon, one of my sons, down there. And all we have to do is return. And he gave us provisions, all the grain we wanted, plus our silver back. And he's like, yeah, all I can see is the negative. I can't see redemption. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And so he chooses avoidance. You know, and even Reuben says, I will give you my sons is collateral or leverage. You can take their life if I don't come back with Simeon. And he still says, no, I won't even do that. Isn't that interesting mm. how the family is so shocked. They don't know what to do. And uh, because of time, I'm not going to read it all. But uh, verse 38, Jacob ends up and says, my son will not go down there with you, meaning Benjamin. His brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to, and in the Hebrew, they use the word sheol, or the grave in sorrow. In other words, it will kill me. I just, I won't be able to do that anymore. So it's really interesting how this massive act of grace, when they know that they need to give an account for their sin, undoes them. So when you show how this is happening what this has is a messianic theme it, it makes a lot more sense like yeah. a lot of these points that just arbitrarily out of context without this kind of mm -hmm. uh, prism you're looking through there it's just like is joseph just been doing something weird <laughs> in egypt and now he's just having a mental break or he's just yes, pranking yes. his brothers but shaved his head one yeah, too many times or something yes. yeah um, but what are some of the takeaways for us today as we look forward to this weekend's message? Like, what should we take from this chapter as a whole? Or what should we be preparing to kind of really think about as we go into the message this weekend? Well, I think there's uh, some very important things that each person who uh, listens to the podcast or is a part of Foothills should understand. And that is, 
we see now that God is healing brokenness. And he is, his will is to heal the brokenness of the human heart and how that brokenness in the human heart creates unhealthy and dysfunctional family units. Unhealthy family units create unhealthy communities. Unhealthy communities create unhealthy states. And unhealthy states create unhealthy nations. And so the way to heal the land, the way to heal the nation is to heal the state and the way to heal the state is to heal the community and the way you heal the community is to heal the family and the way you heal the family is you heal the individual so it starts at the individual it starts it's not a top-down thing we work from we work from down one yeah because there's no such thing as a perfect system of anything you know, we designed it. So yeah, and no way human beings perfect. are all flawed. There's no such thing. Yeah, you know, just, there's no such thing as a perfect anything. So believing that you can create something perfect to solve all the problems is a pipe dream. It's a falsehood. It's it's a it's a deception. But it's a it's a temptation that we have, and that if we play with the big blocks on the board of geopolitical stuff, we're going to solve problems. Well, actually. Christianity approaches it from the exact opposite, and that is, you want to heal the world? Start with your own heart and experience Christ. And when we've seen throughout history, we can talk about this on Thursday a little bit more, is that that has proven to be true over and over again. We've got 2,000 years of history that has tested that propositional truth, and it has proven to be true over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. So we see some of the earliest signs of how redemption of that individual heart works. You see, how, how is it that my heart is healed and how am I saved? Well, first and foremost is that you come to the knowledge that you, not the people around you, not the situation or your circumstance, but you personally must give an account for your flaws, your failures, your imperfections and your mistakes. Because no matter uh, how bad things are around you, how bad you grew up, you are still responsible for the choices that you made that were wrong and the sins that you propagated on other people and the injustice that you have done. You have to come to terms with that. And it's not until you come to terms with that that you can experience the undoing grace of God in your life. And the undoing grace of God is not mercy. You know, mercy is just not receiving what justice demands grace is a whole step further you know and it's really an amazing thing so i think we see the this early pattern on in the very book of genesis very early on and how that god's design is to heal paradise lost through the healing of the individual heart when it comes into contact with his son christ um, I think that the best thing that we can do, some, there's been a lot of turmoil just in our nation right now. And that is, in order to make a difference in it, we have to face our own past as an individual. Not necessarily is a nation per se, which I think I study history. I think it's very important. We learn patterns. Those who are ignorant of history are doomed to repeat it. Uh, there's so much wisdom that comes out of it. But 
if I want to see the world in which I live become a better place, then I personally need to face my past and my rejection of Jesus Christ and my past as Lord and Savior, my flaws and sins in my own past, and ask God to redeem it and ask God to heal it and to restore me, to be saved by him. That is the message of the gospel. And nothing will get fixed until that happens. And so it's really not possible to fix anything else until we have a a mass of people whose hearts have been redeemed in salvation by Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Um, We'll continue a lot of this discussion and expounding on that on Thursday. Um, make sure you leave a like comment if you're watching on YouTube or if you're listening to this in its audio form on our podcast, um, option, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss the next one on Thursday. Leave a five-star review, five Um, stars, baby, five stars, everyone else find us. Um, everybody needs to be here in the salty pastor. So thank you guys so much for joining us and we'll see you on Thursday. God bless. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody.